everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, Dr. Russell Hall, Associate Professor of Counselor Education in the Department of Counseling and Pastoral Care at Asbury Seminary, joins our podcast this week. He is a licensed psychologist who specializes in trauma treatment, internalizing disorders, and developmental psychopathology. He began his clinical career in community mental health with experience working with severe mental illness in state mental health hospitals, competency and criminal responsibility evaluations in the Kentucky State Prison System, school counseling and education evaluations, and as a child and family psychologist in outpatient settings. He became Director of Training in the Department of Counseling and Pastoral Care at the seminary in 2011. In addition to administrating the field placement program, Dr. Hall expanded the department's expertise and student training opportunities in child pathology and counseling. In 2017, he helped co-found the Van Tatenhove Center for Counseling, a training clinic that provides counseling services to the Asbury Seminary community. He also maintains a small private practice. In today's conversation, Dr. Hall and I talk about career, calling, counseling, all the things, so you won't want to miss this encouraging episode. Let's listen. Dr. Hall, I am just delighted to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm just really looking forward to the opportunity to get to know you a little better. Um, I know you just got back from vacation a couple of weeks ago. How was that? It was a lot of fun. My wife and I took a trip back up to Minnesota, where I'm from. Okay. Um, my wife uh, lived there for a few years, um, but uh, uh, Minnesota just kind of visited the old sites, uh, went to a couple of Twins games, and uh, really just kind of enjoyed being back in the North Country, which is yeah. kind of like a kind of a spiritual place, if you will, kind yeah. of a spiritual home for me. Yeah, like less humidity. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although it did get hot, but uh, it definitely left humidity. Yeah. And uh, in Minnesota, I lived um, in central Minnesota, kind of grew up in the St. Cloud area, but we went, but also lived up in Duluth. Okay. And uh, so we uh, spent some time up there on Lake Superior, too. Oh, nice. You know, I my family would go to Michigan or through Michigan every year on the way to on our way to Canada uh, to go the fishing. UP, the UP, yeah, yeah. The UP. But I never saw Lake Superior except in pictures, and I always thought it was so beautiful. It is. A very big lake um, and very pretty. Yeah. Great yeah. shoreline. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how did you and your wife meet if she's not from Minnesota? Yeah, she's from Indianapolis, and okay. we met in college, which would have been um, back in the um, mid-'80s, early-'80s, at Anderson University. Oh, yeah. Uh, back then, it was Anderson College, mm-hmm. um, and that's where we met. I, I worked real hard to capture her. <laughs> she relented at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as as we usually do. So how did you know that she was, I don't believe in the one, but how did you know that she was the one for you? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I was pretty much smitten by her uh, the first time I saw her, um, and so it didn't take a lot of convincing on my end to think that this is a person that I was interested in. Um, I had to do a lot of work to get her convinced <laughs> of me. Um, but uh, once we kind of crossed that bridge, uh, we um, 
found our personalities very similar mm -hmm. and uh, the things that we like very similar same values so mm -hmm. it was an easy fit all important things yeah yeah so how did you this may be jumping around so we can like get it in the order that we need to get it in but how did you come to asbury was counseling always what you were doing I know actually when I graduated from college, uh, actually just before graduation from college, but after graduation I was a youth pastor, so I worked uh, with kids in various capacities. I started out with Youth for Christ and uh, Campus Life and worked for a few years there, and then uh, went into church youth ministry, worked okay. for a couple of years, and then worked with kids through a couple of uh, government-type programs as well. Okay. Then what happened after youth pastoring? Uh, it I kind of came to a crossroads, okay. uh, at least with the denomination I was with. That I was if I was going to continue with that, I really needed a seminary degree, mm -hmm. and so I kind of weighed: is should I continue? Should I go to seminary uh, or pursue a different passion that I had at that time, which was art? And so I chose to uh, go into the field of art, and so uh, things kind of lined up where I got an old or then a new gateway computer <laughs> with CorelDRAW on it and just kind of taught myself how to do graphic design on the computer wow. with those simple programs. And then from there, just kind of navigated a little bit through the art world, a lot of sign making and sign design. Mm -hmm. um, that's uh, kind of how I got into the world of art. And Okay, so how did you get from the world of art to counseling? <laughs> well, that's a good question. <laughs> Uh, I think uh, after about the third round of physical therapy for sitting at a desk looking at a computer all day, um, tendonitis um, was developing pretty bad, and, mm -hmm. and I think I started to hear the word chronic come out of the uh, physical oh, therapist's mouth. That's no good. Yeah, and so it, um, it was at that point that I kind of realized that, okay, I, I can't do this until I'm 60, and I never was... I really enjoyed art and the process of art, but I wasn't like really necessarily great at it or really even good at it. Mm -hmm. I think I just kind of figured out how to do it well enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started to kind of think about um, the things that I did in life that I thought I did a pretty good job at. And I don't know that I was a really good youth pastor, but the mm -hmm. thing that I did, I thought I did pretty well at was to kind of sit with kids and take them out for a Coke and just talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking about you know career options where I could really focus on that, and um, and then thought about psychology. Well, let's let's consider this as an option. Yeah. yeah so you just you how did you make your how did you make your list? Well, I mean, do you make lists? <laughs> so how did you make your like decision making tree or whatever? Because I'm very much a list person. Yeah. So for me, I'm like, oh, there would be the list of I'm good at this, not good at this. Well, part of it was driven by um, where I, living here in, in central Kentucky. I had a young family at that time, so okay. I, I couldn't just pick them up and move to a new opportunity somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of thought about what would be kind of one-on-one -on -one interactions with people, but also something that would be you know, make a good living at. Mm -hmm. So I thought about physical therapy, I thought about occupational therapy, and then I thought about counseling. And I kind of narrowed it down to occupational therapy because at that time there was a good demand for them mm -hmm. and a program at um, you know one of the local universities mm -hmm. and then counseling. And so I opted for counseling because it was probably what I was most familiar with and because I kind of had this romantic idea of like 
psychology, you know, being a psychologist <laughs> as some kind of romantic thing, which isn't at all, but um, that's, you know, sitting in a chair in a turtleneck and, you know, counseling people yeah. kind of thing. And um, so I went that direction. Um, started, I was doing, you know, my job, so I had to take, I took a night class um, at the local community college, uh, just psychology 101, because mm -hmm. in my undergraduate years, I didn't take any Okay. Uh, psychology courses. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even know if I could do it. Yeah. And so I took Psychology 101, found that I liked it, and then from there basically quit my job, applied for a graduate program first and got mm -hmm. accepted, and then quit my job and just kind of went into it. Wow. So you took a class while you worked to see if you liked it and could do it. Yes. And then we're like, this is for me. I'm going to do this. Yes. Yeah. Was that, how was that for you and your family, like quitting work altogether to go back to school? Because otherwise, um, it would take a really long time. Like schooling takes a long time, but to work and go to school also would take many, many years. Yes, it was, it was a, a unnerving process because I had no psychology undergraduate uh, classes and also my GPA wasn't that great so the program that I targeted required that I get my GPA up okay. in order to apply for the graduate program and so what I did is I went to uh, took undergraduate psychology courses at the University of Kentucky for about a year and a half okay. just psychology courses just to get um, the, the you know what I needed foundationally to in order to get into the to the graduate program okay. yeah it was a uh, it was a bit uh, unnerving. We basically left the house we were in, we moved into a small apartment mm -hmm. and something just reduced the rent and we relied mostly on my wife's uh, work as a teacher. Wow. And uh, yeah. did a lot of, a lot of studying. I have no doubt because you said you enrolled in the graduate program but you went on to get a doctorate. Were those Back-to-back? Back? Yep, okay. yep. It was pretty much uh, kind of back-to-back. Back. Once I g got into the graduate program, um, at that time, uh, I had a little bit of a period between the courses I was taking undergraduate and then getting into the graduate program. And basically, I you know, asked my wife if, um, you know, if I got her approval because yeah. it's real important. It is, because <laughs> like, you're both kind of going to school together, you know. Yes, like, yeah. Because there are sacrifices is. that have to be made. The person going to school doesn't have as much time to help around the house or the kids or you know whatever yep. it's a both both people kind of thing absolutely and um she was she was behind me uh she's always been and mm -hmm. um and so basically what i did in the in-between time is i built a house wow it's like i'll build you a house and uh <laughs> and then let me go to graduate school and um and so my father who is a uh, retired um, builder carpenter i asked him say let's help me build a house and so i drew up the plans and I uh, got the loan and um, we built a house together. So it took my father and I about seven months to complete that process. That's really fast for a house, right? Uh, I, I, it may or may not be. It just mm -hmm. a, uh, when you build a, when you have other people build a home, you're kind of tied to their schedule. Right. And so since we were just doing it, we could just spend our time doing it. Right. So I pretty right. much did it full time for about seven months. And then the first day of graduate school classes, I that morning I got up and finished the last thing I had to do on my house, which was to put the shingles up on the windows. And then I went to class that morning, and um, and the house wow. was complete. Wow, that in itself is incredible. And so, like, 
Was this, because I'm unclear on the timeline, was this while you were taking the year of psychology classes? It was in between. In between, okay, in between that year yes. and the grad, okay. Yeah, so about seven months in between when I stopped taking courses, um, built the mm-hmm. house, and then started uh, my, mm-hmm. my graduate program in the fall. Yeah, would you have said you were, because I'm real interested in calling and how different people talk about it and think about it in their own lives, would you have said you were called to be a counselor at that time? How would you have talked about that? That's a really good question. I don't really have a good answer mm-hmm. to that. Um, I think I've always, I've been a person who's never really had a clear understanding of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like my wife, for example, I mean, she knew since she was a little girl that she wanted to be a school teacher. Mm-hmm. And so that's what she did. She mm-hmm. became a school teacher. I had a lot of different interests and couldn't really pick one. So I kind of started out in youth work and then went into art. And then now I'm switching back over to, you know, professional counseling. And I think I think I kind of arrived at a place theologically where I began, where I thought that God would tell me where I needed to go. Yes. And I yes. never really had a clear understanding of that. And so what happened, uh, either I don't know if I read something or heard something, but basically it kind of flipped for me. I started to realize that no matter which road I take, God is at the end of that road. And so that was a freeing experience for me to realize that I can pursue things that I think I'm good at and mm-hmm. can develop into strengths and know that God is on that road with me mm-hmm. um, as I and at the end of that road with me. Mm-hmm. And so that was quite freeing for me to realize that I don't have to like find that one thing right. that I could really just choose things that I felt like I was interested in, God-given interests, mm-hmm. God-given abilities and begin to pursue that, knowing that God was there with me. Mm-hmm. So how do you, as a counselor, how do you then integrate faith into, into what you do professionally? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think when I, I went to a... a for me. Yeah. <laughs> so when I went, I went to a secular school, University of Kentucky, mm-hmm. um, counseling psychology program, and the, it's a secular program, right. and so I was trained in a very humanistic way. So it was always a work for me to kind of keep my faith engaged with that process. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, they really ran parallel. Uh, I had my faith and my, my family, my church, and then I had my you know, training profession and counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, then I did a field placement at uh, actually across the street at Hasbury University. Okay. And so my early training, I went over there for the purpose of trying to figure out how to do the integration piece. Mm-hmm. And so it was re- really there that exposure piece began to kind of figure out how to integrate the two. Um, even then, it was always kind of felt like trying to take two things and figure out how to mash them together. Yes, yeah. Uh, and as I kind of developed uh, as a psychologist and began work here about 10 years ago, it began to become more evident that it, it really is about embodying Christ in my work Mm -hmm. and recognizing that Christ is present. Christ is present with me in my work, and he was certainly with my clients before I entered the room with them. Mm -hmm. And so when I go into the counseling room, I'm looking to embody you know, Christ with my clients. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm, I, I work hard to maintain that, that kind of perspective and that I'm there to give them a drink of water mm-hmm. and something to eat. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you embody Christ to your clients? Because I'm guessing um, you have your own private practice. I'm guessing not everyone you see subscribes to 
the Christian faith. So what does that look like to for that for those people? That's that's a good question. I, I don't. I mean, if I'm working with people who are not believers mm-hmm. um, and they're not interested in talking about that faith aspect that they may have, uh, we we don't. Mm-hmm. But I do believe though that when I do work with the mental health issues that they have, again, the integration piece, uh, I see them as a whole person. I see them as physical and spiritual and psychological Mm -hmm. and emotional. And so I know that if I'm working with the whole person, even if I'm working and addressing a mental health issue, I know that, and I believe that it will touch other aspects of their life. Mm -hmm. And so our language may be more mental health geared and mm-hmm. focused, but I believe that when good work is done there, that and when people become unstuck mm-hmm. from problems, it frees up space in their world to see their life differently and for the Holy Spirit to continue to work in their life. And mm-hmm. I believe it permeates other aspects of their world as well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. When you were in school, you were in school longer than you thought because you added on the doctorate degree yeah. as well. <laughs> but even if you were only doing a master's graduate program. How did you keep going when it got hard? And you were like, am I ever going to be done? You know? <laughs> when do I get to go actually do this thing? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I, I have to admit there are many times I wanted to quit, and I have to admit that there are many times at the end of the semester as I'm getting ready for finals or that final paper that I would pull out the one ads and start looking through them <laughs> thinking, okay, i got to be done with this. I have a, I have a family, yeah. and uh, I need to provide for them. So it was, it was a process of working hard to kind of stay engaged, even though that I wasn't, there was a strong pull for me to to be working. But I always had this kind of mantra that I worked on. I had a few mantras that kind of kept me on track. Mm-hmm. And the one mantra that kept me on track was telling myself um, after graduation, I was going to be about 45 years old. Mm-hmm. And so after graduation, I realized that that I'm going to be 45. And for me, I can be 45 doing what I want to do, or I can be 45 settling for some other type of work. Mm -hmm. But I'm still going to be 45. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that kind of kept me on track to, uh, to, to continue knowing that when I hit 45, I'm, I'm still going to be 45, yeah. but I can be doing something that I feel yeah. that I want to do. Yeah, I love that. When I when I finish whatever this new thing is, I'm going to be this age either mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And so I can be doing something that I love or something that I'm just putting in time yeah. doing. I love that. And so for me, it helped me to absorb the immediate pain mm-hmm. and discomfort of doing a graduate program. Um, and I was willing to absorb that and engage that in order to know that when I got to that age that I was going to be set up doing what I want yeah. to do. It kept the, the goal mm-hmm. in, in sight and the hope in sight, and the hope. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the other mantra that I, I worked by, and I don't remember the, who the quote's by, but this is actually a quote by somebody um, who said that our job is not to glean what lies dimly on the horizon, but to do the job clearly at hand. And so on days where I'm really kind of trudging through mm-hmm. my coursework, uh, I would focus on this is the job clearly at hand. And so I'll continue to push yeah. into that without trying to figure out 
what's way down the road. Right, right. Do do your next right thing. Yeah. And then those pieces. Then the, everything builds. Yeah, yeah, and it'll fall in. Usually it falls into place. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How do you talk about calling with clients or students who come to you? Because I feel like this is a question that gets asked around seminary a lot. Um, how do I know that I'm called to this? What does calling look like? How do you talk about that to students and clients now um, after what you've learned about calling? Because I really identified with what you said. I don't feel like I have one like one thing. I, I feel like some people do, but I'm like you. I, have, I don't have, I have many interests and not one thing. Um, how do you talk about, how do you talk about calling? I talk about it, uh, when I'm asked about it, I talk about it experientially. Um, I think a lot of times, um, and this is true for me, kind of in the initial stage of figuring out what I was going to do, but I think in general, when we think about our future and things that we try to do, there are such big decisions. Mm -hmm. We fall into the trap of just kind of staying in our heads, mulling it over and over and over, trying to figure out all the all the pitfalls, all the things, variables that are involved. In other words, we try to construct really this complex puzzle in our head right. to figure out what the picture is, and then then that kind of lays out our future plan. Mm-hmm. And what I tell students or anybody who's interested in it is that really life doesn't work that way. We gain insight through experience. Right. And so it's through just the engaging in aspects of life, kind of getting into your life and doing the things that you value and love that things actually start to fall into place. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that insight when I started graduate school mm-hmm. all those years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I just kind of did it. I just like, okay, I'm gonna take a class just to see if I can do psychology. So I took a, a psychology 101 class, and then it was like, I'll just take, I'll, I'll make a leap, and I'll quit my job and go do these undergraduate courses mm-hmm. just to see if I could do it. Right, right. And so it kind of just built on each other, and then through experience, things began to kind of clarify in terms of direction to go into. And by clarify, you mean you could do the classes, you enjoyed the classes, and you were like, I, I want to keep doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I've, even even what I'm doing now, when mm-hmm. I when I was in school, uh, trained to become a psychologist, I had no intention of academic work. Really. Uh, my goal was to be a clinician, to be a practicing psychologist and working with people. Mm-hmm. And um, and I even then I I you know was kind of like honed in on a certain population I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And so just through the engagement of field placement and through the engagement of other aspects of my life, I just things started to unfold that, yeah, I kind of like this work or I think I can try this work. Mm -hmm. And so when I came here um, 10 years ago, I was doing clinical work. I was very happy Mm -hmm. with my work. I was working in uh, Shelbyville and uh, had zero idea or interest of leaving because I really liked the people I were working yeah. with. And then this job came up and it really started with, well, I'll just put in an application and see. <laughs> That's how most things start, yeah. at least for me. Well, I'll just apply. Yeah. Uh, because when I when I looked at the job description, they were asking for things that I didn't have. So I didn't really think I was that qualified for it. Mm-hmm. But I just started with an application and then you know, here you have a, a series of things you have mm-hmm. to do, the questions you need to answer. And I just kind of took them as they came, and it, things just unfolded Yeah. and um, followed the path, and this is where it took me. Yeah, yeah. How did you know that Asbury Seminary was 
the right next step for you. I didn't. You didn't. So no. you just said yes to try it out because yeah. you thought it might be, fun's um, too trivial of a word, but you thought it might be a good fit when they decided it was also a good fit for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't even know that. I had no idea if it would be a, okay. good, a good fit or not. And it was also kind of a, a grieving process for me to leave full-time clinical work because I really do mm-hmm. f- felt that that was something I did really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, um, it was just going down the road to see what was there. Yeah. And it, again, it goes back to my, my belief that whatever road I take, God is at the end of that road waiting for me. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't f- believe that um, I had to find that one thing mm-hmm. that I'm free to actually travel roads and experience things because I know mm-hmm. God is on that road with me. And if I stay on that road longer, you know, such as coming here and staying here for, you know, 10 right. years now, then it's um, it's a good thing. Yeah. I'm curious about when you say a lot of people get stuck in their head building that puzzle of what they think. I get stuck in my head so much trying to figure out the next thing. Um, how do you get unstuck to actually get brave enough to take the next step to explore because that's where I'm like that's where I get stuck is like um, putting in that application for school or this because it seems like a big commitment and oh what if I don't like it and so I have all these things and I'm guessing I'm not alone since you use that as an example how do you get unstuck be willing to fail that that's a scary thing and no one likes to fail Um, I think I I think I was pretty good at failing at things up to that point so maybe <laughs> it was less scary for me but I think a, a lot of it is just being willing to to for things not to work out um, again you know we have multiple roads in life and mm-hmm. um, and if one road doesn't work there are plenty of other roads to go down that is definitely <laughs> true and I find that really comforting that we can we can try things because we enjoy them mm-hmm. and and we'll we'll figure it out. Somebody said, I forget who it is, but somebody that I've heard says God won't let us miss our future. Whatever whatever that future is, He's not going to let us miss miss that. Um, so coming to Asbury was obviously a good fit for you. You've been here ten years, and were recently promoted to associate professor of counseling. So congratulations. Thank you. What does your new role look like? Um, that's a Good question. Uh, th- there isn't a lot of change in my job responsibilities, mm-hmm. although I've, I've acquired a new class that I'll be teaching. I think when when I entered into the director training position, uh, it was a brand new position. It was just just created. Okay, by uh, director of training. Uh, that was my previous role okay. uh, as director of training, and so it was a brand new position just created. And so the creation was they did, the people that created it in my department really didn't know what it was supposed to look like, and so they chose the staff. Uh, kind of role for that. Mm-hmm. And so when I entered into that, it quickly uh, began to kind of morph into this kind of pseudo faculty type of position mm-hmm. where I would teach, engage in a lot of teaching, and then manage the field placement program as director of training. Mm-hmm. And so as I move, I'm beginning to move beyond that, um, I I'll begin, at some point, I'll relinquish the director of training okay. piece. But the uh, the teaching you know continues mm-hmm. and my department activities continue, so there really is kind of almost like a seamless okay. piece for me. So mm-hmm. there isn't a lot of stress in that in that transition. That's good. It's pretty That's seamless. Good. 
What types of classes do you think, do you teach? Because I realize um, the actual class might change from semester to semester, but what types of classes will you be teaching? Well, under director training, my responsibilities was field placement. So I taught all the field placement courses. And field placement is uh, where students go out and get practical experience. And then in class, we do, uh, we have learning things that we learn, but it's a lot of group supervision. It's a lot of processing of their experience. And then me just giving teachable moments. Mm -hmm. And then I also taught group counseling. Mm -hmm. And then uh, our program had really no child or adolescent presence in the program. And since that was most of my history, my clinical history is working with kids, then I developed uh, two courses, a counseling child and a counseling adolescent course. And then I teach those. Wow, that's so needed. How is counseling children and adolescents, how does it (laughs) differ from working with adults? It's a, it's a good question. Um, with kids, you can't really engage in just a conversation like we're doing mm-hmm. here. Uh, as kids get older, this becomes a much easier process. Mm-hmm. But you really have to use the language of kids, and kids' uh, kids' language is really through f- uh, engagement, experience, and play. And so there's a lot of using more experiential pieces with kids to help them process whatever they need to work through. Mm-hmm. The other dynamic that's involved is that you have parents. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about kids coming in for counseling, you're really, in my opinion, you're talking about family counseling. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I don't, I never look at a child who comes into my room as the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, although sometimes parents think of them as the problem. Right, right. It's really the system that's at play within that family that's the problem. Mm-hmm. And so I'll work oftentimes a lot with parents to kind of evaluate the way that they're managing mm-hmm. uh, whatever issues are in the family. And that, that actually modifications on that end oftentimes takes care of the, the issues with the kids. Mm-hmm. How do you know, like as a parent with your child, how do you know if counseling, if counseling is needed for your child, and, or would and, be helpful? Yeah, that I think um, I think for parents who feel like they're kind of in over their head, or they've, or their their child is now at a place where they feel like they're they've run out of options or ideas of what to do with them, going to a good counselor or psychologist would be beneficial. But in my opinion. Um, professional opinion, the my work then is really to help the parent figure out other options. Mm-hmm. And so when I practice, I usually just want to see the parents first. Okay. I want to hear their story of how they understand their child. And I assess uh, the child through them. And a lot of times when those parents come in, the issue really is kind of a parenting issue. Okay, like what, what do you mean by parenting They've, issues? They're simply either implementing a wrong parenting strategy for the, okay. for the characteristics and personality of the child, or they're just really inconsistent at it, okay. um, or their conceptualization of their child has kind of led them to kind of uh, interaction styles mm-hmm. that just aren't working for the child mm-hmm. or the family. And so a lot of times I can just work with the parent and help implement some strategies in there and to help with the child. So in some cases, I actually never meet the child. Wow, that's interesting. It's important from my perspective because I don't want the child to come into my room thinking that they're the problem. Mm -hmm. I really work hard to, if I can avoid not having to have that interaction, um, because I don't want them to feel that way. Now, a lot of times I'll go to the school 
uh, if I need to more information, I'll go to the school, I'll talk to the teacher uh, and observe the child in the school to kind of get better information. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do parents find a good counselor for their child? Because I would think it can be a little tricky, you know, to f- find someone you feel comfortable with because you're kind of releasing your most precious person over to somebody else. Yeah, the, uh, I think uh, by probably asking around is okay. probably the best way to manage that, to talk with okay. family and friends who may have seen somebody. Yeah. Might be a good way. Yeah. All right. Awesome. I want to get back to your work at Asbury because mm-hmm. in 2017, you helped co-found the Van Tatenhove Center for Counseling. How did this come to be? It um, was actually a dream that I had um, early on when I when I got here that the idea that we it would be really good to kind of have a counseling center because the seminary didn't have one. Mm-hmm. And a counseling center would be a good training facility for our students as well. Mm-hmm. And it kind of matched up with um, one of our other professors, Dr. Stratton. Yes. Had a similar uh, interest. And so as uh, we just kind of continue to work together, it kind of organically began to form that uh, we want to start a counseling center to help train some of our students. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we were interested in good quality training and then also good integrative uh, training mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And so we, we actually just decided that we were going to do this on our own, under our own license. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would uh, just kind of form a counseling center and just out of our department. And as we were beginning that process, then uh, a donor s- stepped forward mm-hmm. and were interested in honoring uh, Fred Van Tatenhove, was one of our former uh, professors. Oh, yes. And, uh, and so his son and daughter-in-law were interested in honoring him and the family. And so they um, graciously donated some money to begin to form, an, in a more structured way, mm-hmm. a counseling center. And so it kind of matched up beautifully mm-hmm. that, yeah, that that need was met um, yeah. with, with uh, these wonderful donors. Definitely. So the Van Tatenhove Center for Counseling is kind of like an internal field placement program for counselors, counseling, you can correct me on this, for counseling students who are about to graduate and need, um, for lack of a better term, internship hours. Is that? Essentially, yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's another field placement for students to attend. And so our students are really, these students are really at the a few months away from professional practice and, and when they engage in their field placement. So we have good qualified students who come mm-hmm. in to the Van Tateno Center and we provide therapeutic services to the seminary community. Mm-hmm. Up to that point, any counseling need was basically referred off campus. Okay. And so we put together a um, kind of a business plan and, uh, and uh, went to the school and said, we want to do kind of a pilot yeah. for a year. And so we kind of piloted this with two of our students. Uh, we, we chose two and piloted with them. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it, it went well. Mm-hmm. Students were responding to, uh, to this, the counseling center. And we started to kind of create a niche within our yeah. student body population that counseling services are available. So it benefits both counseling students and the other students on campus. Is it, because I assume it's not for faculty, because that could be a little weird to have students counseling faculty members, but are, 
So for students and their families. Correct. Students and their families. And correct. Uh, we're really unable to work with faculty or their family members just because of the dual relationship right. nature right. of right. us being involved in, right. in their world. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what is y'all's vision where are you currently located? And then what is the vision for the future of the Van Tatenhove Center for Counseling? Well, for the last three years, we've been functioning out of our department in the evenings. Uh-huh. So Steve and I have been providing a supervision in the evenings uh, for the last three years out okay. of our department. So basically, the counselor that the people in the seminary community see, they get two counselors or the price of one. They do. They do. They do. <laughs> yes, our students are hopefully well supervised, and uh, our clients uh, get to see get up two two brains for the price of yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. And it, of course, the price is that it's free to, to seminary yes, students. So which it's is a, a huge, huge thing, especially right now. Yeah. And, but yeah, please go on. Sorry. Yeah. And so, uh, but we are now in the fall going to be opening it up in a different space. Uh, it's the basement space in the old Free Methodist Church building, which is currently being renovated. And we hope, uh, we expect in the fall to open our doors there and then open up for daytime hours. Wonderful. Yeah, we're going to kind of do a bigger launch and have more um, hours available for students to go to counseling. And, um, and so, that space is being renovated. And then eventually down the road, uh, there's a uh, newer building that uh, the seminary is going to be at some point renovating for the counseling center and the department. That'll be wonderful. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. We're looking forward to that. Very exciting, yeah. Is the website the best way for folks, interested folks to connect with you guys? Yep, the website would be a good, uh, a good way to do that. And then also just calling uh, our department. Okay. I will link, we will link both of those resources in the show notes because mental health has always been important, but it's becoming increasingly more important with everything that the entire world is going through right now. So how can we continue to take care of our mental health? You know, 2020 was a hard year for Mm -hmm. so many in so many different ways. Yeah. I think in ways we might not we might just be realizing or might not have realized yet how can we continue to take care of ourselves during this time as the news uh, continues to be true to form and continues to be very scary right now yeah i agree and especially as we start hearing about the the new variant yes. uh, and um and then the idea of kind of shutting down or going back to mask for many of us is mm-hmm. something that we don't want to think about right um so I think I think the good news is is that we have more information than we did at the beginning of 2020. Yes, and it was much more of a scary thing. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what it was, and a lot of deaths were occurring. And so we have a lot more information, which is good. And then I think our medical um, folks have better at treating and mm-hmm. things to do Definitely. and things not yeah. to do. Um, and I think that's that adds some comfort as well. But if people are like me, and which is you just want to get back to normal, <laughs> yes. if you will, um, it, it the thought of kind of going back to masks or isolating or even just social distancing is something that brings, I know for me, a lot of anxiety and maybe even on my uh my less than perfect days, a sense of despair. <laughs> yes, same. <laughs> same. Uh, I think um, I think the things that I try to do, and I think are helpful, might be helpful to others, is I really try to disconnect from the media. Yeah. Um, I think avoiding 
avoiding the media is probably a good thing. Not that they're not informing us information mm -hmm. is good. Uh, I'll have to be honest, I think sometimes their motives are different <laughs> but um, than just informing. Mm -hmm. But I think disconnecting, because we just, we can get overloaded with information. Yes. And that, you have to know some things. Yes. But you don't have to know everything Correct. all the time. And, or 24-7. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think uh, we just get on information overload which is a good way to, if you want to feel bad about yourself, then overload on information in our world. Mm -hmm. You'll, you'll mm -hmm. certainly feel bad about yourself. Yes. So I think kind of unplugging and being selective on where we get our information and uh, the rest of the time is really just engaging in life, being mm -hmm. connected to your family, being connected to your friends, um, staying in routines, uh, continue to pursue goals and values mm -hmm. um, are the uh, important things to do. I think to kind of help gird ourselves yeah. for um, if there's another round coming. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully not. But hopefully not. Even if not, some of these practices that you talked about are just good general life practices because life can be difficult enough without any of the extra things that we have encountered lately. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Hall, this conversation has been an absolute delight. It's encouraged me so much personally and so i've no doubt our listeners will find that true as well is there any we have one question we ask everybody but before i do that is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't already talked about i don't think so but i had a lot of fun oh awesome, awesome. <laughs> thank you <laughs> so the one question that we ask everyone because the show is called the thrive with asbury seminary podcast what is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now there are actually a few things, okay. uh, but I we're think we're open to more than more one. The more than one, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, staying connected to my family is mm -hmm. real important uh, for me, uh, and not just mental health wise, but kind of spiritually as well. Mm -hmm. my my kids are grown and married, and so it's real important for them to to stay connected. And I think also very important for me is staying connected to my wife. Um, mm -hmm. That uh, relationship is very important to me. So I think that helps me to to thrive. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I do a, a fair amount of reading, mm -hmm. and so I'm always interested in how uh, how I personally grow and benefit from mm -hmm. connection with the readings that I do. Yeah. And, and what do you like to read? What do I like to read? <laughs> Uh, I do enjoy uh, reading aspects of theology, especially as it connects to my profession. Mm -hmm. And I think more of late, I've been reading more of some of the older church fathers. Um, and partly for me, it's just connecting to the lineage of my faith. I think as, as, a, as a Protestant in kind of 2021, it's really easy for me to think in a very contemporary way yes. that my faith is just it's a contemporary mm -hmm. experience and uh and that it only it doesn't go back that far um, right, you know right. a, a couple hundred years mm -hmm. and i was it was um there was kind of a revelation for me at some point a few years back where i realized that my faith is actually connected uh, to the very beginning mm -hmm. and that there are people who, and then I started reading some of those church fathers and realizing, oh my goodness, they, mm -hmm. the tremendous amount of wisdom and, um, and, and insight and maturity that they, they have in the mm -hmm. faith really began to inform how I not only understood my faith, but understood my integration, even integration mm -hmm. with psychology mm -hmm. and uh, theology. Yeah. 
And so that connection is very important to me, and I pursue those as yeah. a way to thrive. Yeah. Are you reading a particular book right now? Uh, I read. I have a lot of different books. Okay, so you're, you're one of those that reads more than one at the same time? I do. Now, okay. that doesn't mean that I finish them. Right, right, but you have several going. <laughs> but I, I do read uh, quite a bit, and I think uh, professionally, the, th- the piece that I'm more connected to professionally now is more having to do with heritability and more understanding about how, how our genes are influencing how we turn out in this world. And so that's a, a really interesting field that I've been exploring, um, it, because, again, for the integration mm-hmm. piece. Yeah. And then um, St. Athanasius would be one, St. Gregory mm-hmm. would be another, okay. where I'm looking at some of the old church fathers to understand Okay. My faith. I love that. I love mm-hmm. because I've actually been thinking about the church fathers more lately too, rather than focusing my listening or reading on contemporary leaders. Not that they're not important, but just to go back and see what ancient, more ancient leaders had to say about faith. And I was Absolutely. like, I think there's a lot to learn from that. Yeah, and Wesley did as well. John mm-hmm. Wesley had uh, had a connection to the Eastern Church as well, mm-hmm. and uh, so I think he was doing a lot of the same things that we're doing. Yes. So. Yes, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hall. I've just enjoyed this. Like I've said, it's been such an encouragement. So thank you. It's been fun for me too. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Russell Hall. I just so enjoyed the opportunity to get to know him better and hope you enjoyed today's encouraging conversation as well. As always, if you haven't already, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.